who came before all of us. He will have achieved 29 years of continuous sobriety next February. Almost my age of 39. Which makes him the oldest living member of AA in length of sobriety. He was the first member of AA in Cleveland, Ohio, helped organize the first AA group in Cleveland, and, or rather did organize the first AA group in Cleveland, and helped organize many others. And that was actually the first AA group as they broke away from the Oxford group, which in studying the history of our great program, you know that there was a forerunner of AA, was the Oxford group, and Clarence was the person who broke away from the Oxford group and started the first group of AA as we know it now. He's one of the first 40 members of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's one of the men who helped write the book. So if there's any of you here who want to rewrite the book, he's the fellow to see. And his story is one of the stories in the book from which all of us have drawn great hope and great strength and that wonderful warm feeling of a new life. And he's got a very hearty laugh and I'm sure that we're going to be delighted with uh, an excellent message tonight. So without any further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce, all the way now from St. Petersburg, Florida, one of our grand champions of our wonderful program, Clarence. Yes, Clarence. Well, thank you very much. I'm very anxious to hear what this fellow's got to say. First of all, I do wish to thank the committee for inviting me here. I have never been to Northern California. In fact, I have never had any connection with any AA function here in California except one meeting I went to about six years ago in San Diego with Jim Burwell. And that's really a pleasure and I'm having a real blast here. I've made some wonderful new friends. I met some old ones here. It's one thing about AA, when you get around and stick around here, no matter where you go, you're going to run into someone you know. You can't get away with anything anymore. Here I, old friends of mine from Cleveland, Dewey Species and, and Johnny Hilliards, and, and some folks from down in Florida, the Lillientals, some of them are all here, friends of mine. Doesn't make any difference where we go, we have them. Why, uh, I do thank you for inviting me here to take part in this wonderful program. Uh, you heard my name is Clarence Snyder, and I come from St. Petersburg. For the benefit of anyone here who belongs to the press, the radio, or the films, that name Snyder is spelled S-N-Y-D-E-R. 
I have always been about as anonymous as a barber pole. I never seem to be able to hide anything anyway, so I have nothing to hide from anyone. So much for that. You know, looking over a crowd like this, it's, it's really a thrill. I never seem to get over it. I'm invited by people to come around and talk to various meetings, various places, and this always gives me a tremendous thrill. I look at a crowd like this. They're all dressed up and all shined up. Look wonderful. Wonderful looking crowd. And when I look at a crowd such as this, I always think of one of my favorite rummy stories. I'm not much at telling rummy, uh, at telling stories at all, but I do have a few which I enjoy. And I think one of my favorites is a story of about Jer Jerry, the town drunk. I might call him Vern, maybe, but his name really was Jerry. And this fellow had been drunk as long as anyone in town could remember. And he was always dirty, and disheveled, unshaven, and his hind end was out of his britches and his bare feet were on the ground. He was always drunk, many, many years. And this went on and on and on, and eventually the day came when Jerry finally turned up his toes and died. We all do. He did. And this created a problem in the town. They had to have a burial for him. So someone had to take responsibility for it, and someone did. So they went around to the village barber, and he offered to shave him and clean him up. One of the tailors fixed him up a suit. Someone gave him a shirt and a necktie, and they got him all spruced up, got his hair cut and shaved and the whole thing. And the undertaker, the local undertaker, offered to bury him. And then they had to find a preacher to preach the funeral sermon. And they had a little job doing that, but they finally got one. So the funeral was held, and the whole town turned out to attend this funeral. And this preacher got up, and he just didn't know quite what to say. He, so he got up, and he said, Well, friends, he says, we're gathered here together to, to the last rites of Jerry. He says, We all knew him. We knew him for what he was. He says, I don't know just what to say about him. I don't know just how to begin or what I might say. But he says, there's one thing I'd like you all to do. He says, I'd like everyone here to come up and take a look at Jerry and see how good he looks since he quit drinking. This morning, or this afternoon rather, it was morning to me, I never got up till 11 o'clock, uh, I was listening to Dr. Lund make his talk here, and he, during his talk, he made several references to miracles. I always like to talk about the miracle of AA, and this is a miracle, and I think every person here is a miracle and a result of a miracle. I think about the time how I arrived in this fellowship. As you heard during my introduction, I came to this fellowship before it was known as AA. There was no AA, but I came to it. This is rummy-like. And 
the mathematical chances of my being here are so remote they couldn't be figured by any one of these new fandangled machines they have. I want to tell you something about how I got here. And from that point on, maybe I can talk something about this program, talk about my ideas of it. Someone mentioned to me that they have a clock up here. I don't know how to tell time. Uh, I intend to spend the first hour and 45 minutes talking about myself. And then I will talk for another hour about the program. Well, we're not going anywhere anyway. Right, here's what happened to me. Many years ago, I wound up a hopeless, helpless alcoholic. I was married to a gal and her family. <laughs> and this was some family. Believe me. They used to have family conferences and I was never invited to them. I was generally the subject under consideration. Several times they threw me bodily out of my own home. This actually happened to me. So finally the day came that they gave me my very, very last chance to stay home. And this was predicated upon the idea that I should go to work for my wife's brother. Well, let me say this right at the beginning. I have always been against work. Being sober all these years has not changed that attitude either. <laughs> However, this brother-in-law had a truck. He had one of these long-distance outfits. He ran merchandise between Cleveland and New York City. And I was supposed to hire on as his helper. Well, I've never ridden on a truck, let alone drive one, and the very thought of it was petrifying. But I had to go along with this gag because it was either that or I'm out of the nest. So I agreed to do this. By this time, I might add, all of my clothes had been sold. Everything of value that I owned was gone. And all my earthly possessions consisted of a shirt, a pair of trousers, a pair of shoes, a hat, and a sweater. This was my wardrobe. And I went up, started out on this trip with my brother-in-law, and it was the beginning of winter. Everything happens to me in the lousiest of weather, and this was no exception. We started for New York, and he didn't know it, but I had a dollar in some sense secreted around my person in change. I had a little dough. And he drove and drove and drove, but he finally, to make a long story short, the following night, he got to Albany, New York, and he gave out. He couldn't drive anymore. So he was going to take a nap. He had one of those sleeper cabs where one sleeps on the seat and the other fellow sleeps up above. He had fixed this place up above for me and cleaned it up nice and put a curtain in the window even. It was nice. Clean blankets, everything. And I looked behind and see that big thing following down that trailer, and I was really petrified at this thing. Twenty-some tons of merchandise in it. So I had to spend the time up there, but when he counted out, I got away from him. I told him, well, we're in Albany. This is the capital of New York. I want to go down through the Capitol buildings. 
the dear boy went to sleep, and I went my merry way. I can still remember two events of that thing. The first place I got into, it was too rich for my blood. And I ran down the street, and I got into a place that is more fitting to a man of my estate. And I found an angel in there, and I was throwing him in like this. And away I went before anyone knew I was gone. I started back for the truck, and of course, I hadn't had a drink for several days. And boy, this stuff hit me all at once. And when I got in the truck and climbing up, I stepped on his face. <laughs> well, to make a long story short, that was the end of my job. I hadn't even started on it yet. He drove me into New York City, drove down to the waterfront, and he threw me out. He left me there. He says, this is the end of the line. He wrote his sister and told her what he'd done with that no-good so-and-so. He had another sister in New York, in Yonkers. I, had, I knew where she lived because when I was married, we went there on our honeymoon. This was a very clannish family, as I mentioned. And so I went out to see Virginia. Virginia had visited us many, many times and lived with us many, many times. And I thought Virginia certainly owed me a favor, so I went out and thought maybe I might get some help from her. I can only remember that she used to live up on top of a hill, but I didn't go up on a hill, I went down a hill, and I got in that Italian neighborhood down there, and I got mixed up with a lot of very interesting people, slapping a lot of Dago Red. And you know what happened. The only thing I remember, I got up to her place, and I can remember one thing, I was rolling around on the floor with her two kids, and I was boiled. And she took a dim view of this, and she put me in her car and drove me down to New York to the waterfront where her brother had thrown me out, and she did likewise. <laughs> now, get the picture. I was hundreds of miles away from home. I didn't have one friend in the world. I shall never forget this feeling. I didn't have one friend, one person in this world who cared whether I was alive or dead. I didn't have a dime to my name. No clothes, no wardrobe, no nothing, and I didn't know where to go. I'm in New York. Well, I existed in New York for a long time. I know it was a good long time because how long I can't tell you, but I know the calendar went around because it was lousy weather again when I got back to Cleveland. I didn't keep track of time, I wasn't going anyplace, but I had, I kept out of trouble there. I'm not going into the story of what I did in New York, but there's a lot of interesting things happened to me while I was there. The main thing that happened was this, and I do nothing about this. After my visit to Virginia's home in Yonkers, one day she had the family doctor out there, about one of the kids, I guess, and they got to talking about drinking. This seems to be a favorite subject in most societies. And she told her family doctor about this drunken brother-in-law of hers, who used to be such a swell guy once, and what a drunken bum he is now, and told her about my visit there. And this doctor says, you know, that's odd. He says, I had a drunken brother-in-law like that once myself. And he met some kind of a cult. <laughs> and... He spends all of his time trying to sober up drunks, and he's staying sober doing that. And this doctor further told Virginia, he says, you know, there's a doctor, a medical doctor down in Akron, Ohio, who spends all of his time sobering up drunks. 
And if your brother-in-law ever gets back there to Cleveland, you might send him down to Akron. Maybe this doctor can fix him. This is taking place all beknownst to me. People are always doing things behind my back. Eventually, I got back to Cleveland, and I tried to get in the nest, and the little woman met me on the front porch. And I remember that it was lousy weather, and there was snow on the ground. The one thing that I can remember about it, she still had the screen doors up. And I pointed out that she needed a man about the house to take care of details like that. But she said she didn't need one that badly. <laughs> so, but I didn't get in. But she told me about this doctor in Akron and asked me if I'd like to go down and meet him. Well, there was nothing I could lose by going down and meeting this doctor who was fixing drunks, so I told her I'd be glad to. So she was a kind soul. She took me down to the bus depot and she bought me a one-way ticket to Akron and put me on a bus. And that's how I met my sponsor, Dr. Bob. Eventually, Doc put me in a hospital, a city hospital in Akron, Ohio, and that's how I came to this fellowship. A little history about this. This was not known as AA at that time. This was a meeting of the Oxford movement. I spent a week in that hospital, and I'll tell you a few things how I was in that day. I weighed 130 pounds. I don't know when I had eaten, but I know I had been drunk for a number of years. I was not a periodic drinker. I was drunk all the time. And when I wound up in that hospital, this was something. I can remember when I went down there, I, Doc had told me to meet him there one morning, and I went down there, and here's what happened to me. I, I got into Akron that morning that, he, that I promised I'd come down, and I walked out to City Hospital from that bus depot, and it was zero weather in February. And when I walked into that hospital, got into that lobby, I passed out, comped out. And I didn't, I came to, I was up in a room and there was a lot of activity around. People were very busy. I seemed to be the object of curiosity. There are all kinds of people there and nurses and other people. I don't know who they all were, but I came to, and you know the first thing I saw when I came to? Over on that windowsill was a bottle of rub as a rubby-dub. And I thought, oh boy, I came down here to quit drinking, but I had a horror of ever getting DTs. And I've seen fellas, and fellas I had drank with, and several of them died in them. And I didn't want those things. And being an everyday drinker, I didn't get DTs, because I never gave them a chance to get in there and play with me. <laughs> and I thought, here I'm quitting. This is when I'm going to be in trouble. And if I should happen to hear the bells ringing or anything like that, there is my answer in that rub right on the windowsill. And I knew there'd be a bottle of that Althea on every, probably in every room on that floor. So this gave me courage. The nurse came along, she had a tray with two things on it, a big slug of booze and a big slug of something else, which was peraldehyde. And she says, Mr. Snyder, Mr. I hadn't been called that a long time. I still remember this. She says, we have some medicine for you. She says, you take this nice big drink of whiskey, and then you can take this medicine after it, and you're going to be fine. So I got on my hind legs, and I informed that gal that I came down there to quit drinking, not to drink any of her booze.
I looked had my eye on that bottle all the time and talking to her. But I never drank that. I didn't take that sober enough drink. I didn't take those knockout drops. And I've never had a drink to this day. I never touched her alcohol. So what happened to me? What happened? Why can a man or any person be drunk all these years and be obsessed with the idea of drinking and all of a sudden like that quit? Why is this? You ever ask yourself this question? Why do people walk into this group after they've had a life of debauchery and drunkenness, disgrace, hurt, injury, and just like that, everything changes? Everything changes? Why? There's a reason for this. It certainly isn't because we understand this program or we've absorbed it or are working it. I don't believe that at all. But I'll probably go into that a little later. But here's what happened to me. I'm in that hospital for a week. After I'm in there a couple of days, men start coming in to see me, the men who had preceded me in this way of life. All the alcoholics came in. Now, the Oxford movement was not made up of alcoholics. The alcoholics were in the minority. They're mostly other people who are trying to learn to live a good type of life according to Christian principles. And uh, the alcoholics are in there by sufferance more than anything else. But the, uh, the people in the Oxford group accepted the alcoholics as a challenge. They thought they could fix anybody. They got along fine when they got into these alkies. They even had to change the name of the Oxford group and then the alkies got through with them. They call it moral rearmament now. I got into this thing, and these fellas come in and tell me their story. I was in there a week. Every man came in there, and he wound up his talk to me by saying, that, telling me that he had the answer to my drinking problem. But none of them would give me that answer. They wouldn't tell me what it was. I was expecting some kind of an operation or something. I was in a hospital under the care of a medical doctor. It's logical to believe. So... They wouldn't tell me what this answer was. So I'm in there a week. I didn't eat all the time I was in there. I can remember this because the last day I was in there, Paul Stanley came in. Paul's dead now, as all those fellas are. They're all gone. And Paul was to talk. You never see, you, you think you've heard guys that can run off at the mouth. This guy really could go. Paul had been raised a Catholic, and he got mixed up in Christian science somewhere along the line. Then he got into unity, and he got into some kind of Buddhism deal, and then he wound up in the Oxford group. And if you don't think that this guy had something to say, you're crazy. <clears throat> he came in at breakfast time, and he ate my breakfast for me. He was still there at lunch, and he got my lunch. I did get the dessert. There was peaches for dessert. I got the peaches. He got the rest of it. Along about four or five o'clock in the afternoon, Doc came in, Doc Smith, Dr. Bob to you. And Paul left. He missed my supper. But Doc, here's what happened to me. Doc had been in every day, and this day he came in and he sat on the foot of my bed. And any of you folks who ever had the great pleasure of meeting my sponsor will remember him as a very tall, angular man. And he had fingers on him this long. And I swear he could look holes right through you. 
He could do this. He had a penetrating gaze. I was half scared of the guy myself. Anyway, he came and sat on the foot of my bed, a very most unprofessional posture, and he looked at me for a few minutes. And he said to me this. I can still remember this so well. He says, well, young fellow, he says, what do you think of this by now? He used to call me young fellow all the time. And never anything but young fellow unless he was disturbed with me. Then he'd call me Clarence. But when he called me Clarence, I'm in trouble. But when he called me young fellow, I'm in good grace with him. So he said, young fellow, what do you think of this by now? I says, I think this is wonderful. All these fellas come to see me. They don't know me from a bale of hay. And they're all telling me their stories. I know they're rummies. But they all tell me one thing, Doc. I, I'm puzzled. They all tell me they have the answer to my problem. But nobody tells me what this answer is. What do I have to do? What are you going to do to me? He looked at me. He says, well, he says, young fellow, we don't know about you. We're not too sure about you. You're pretty young. We don't know if you're ready yet. Not ready yet. 130 pounds. I hadn't worked in three years. I was absolutely unemployable. You want, you want me to tell you how unemployable I was? I never thought about this until I was talking about it one time. Some people were laughing about it. They thought it was hilarious. I didn't think it. I never realized it was so silly. But you know, when I was drinking, all these jug buddies of mine were on WPA. This was way back. And they were getting 18 bucks a week on WPA. And do you know they wouldn't take me? <laughs> I couldn't make it. I couldn't even stand there and hold a flag. I have nursed a resentment toward Roosevelt ever since. Yes, sir. Boy. And you know something else? My wife was always very interested in my going to work. And you know what her job was? She was head of the mail department in a, an employment agency, and she couldn't get me a job. Of all people who were interested, and she lied like anything to get me anything. She, she couldn't make it even. I was strictly unemployable. I was sick. I weighed 130 pounds. I was whipped. I was done. So Doc sits there and tells me he don't know if I'm ready yet. I didn't think I was going to get into this deal at all. What did I have to do to get ready? <laughs> he said to me, he says, all these young fellas he'd had before, and I was 35 years old then. Now, figure real fast. I'll tell you real quick. I'll be 64 in December, so. He said, all these young fellas we had before were all screwballs. They're all nuts. And uh, they couldn't do anything with them. They belonged in an asylum. So they weren't too sure about me. I had to convince him that I'd had enough. And I wanted to do something about this. And apparently I did convince him. So he says, all right, young fella, I'll give you the answer to this thing. Boy, I was relieved then. I says, fine. He says, get out of that bed. Yeah, what, what, what for? He says, get on your knees. He says, why are you on my knees? He said, you're going to pray. I said, who's going to pray? He said, you're going to pray. I said, I don't know anything about praying. He said, well, I don't suppose you do, he says, but I'll pray and you can repeat what I say after me and that'll do for this time. So out of the bed, out of my bones, out of the floor of that hospital, 
I fought like a fool, but it didn't kill me. As you can see, I'm still here. And he uttered a prayer. I don't know what it was. I couldn't tell you. But I repeated it after him. And after I concluded, why well, he shook hands with me. He said, young fellow, you're going to be all right. Okay? And he carried me to a meeting that night. And this was a meeting of the Oxford group. I can still remember first meeting, some of the details of that meeting. The format of our meeting was entirely different than it is today. It was in a home. It was in the home of T. Henry Williams. They were not alcoholics. Most people there were not. It was a beautiful home, oriental rugs on the floor, grand piano, and a lot of knickknacks and antiques around, and beautiful things in the home. I can remember that because I'd made a mental note of some of the smaller things. <laughs> and well, future reference, you know. So anyway, I didn't take anything. Not that I didn't think about it. But I attended this meeting, and it kind of frightened me. One thing kind of frightened me there that I wasn't prepared for. I met these men who had come to visit me in the hospital, but there were a lot of ladies there, a lot of women. They scared me. They don't anymore. I got over that. It's one blessing of AA. But this did frighten me a bit at the time. Everyone was, seemed to be related or something. They were all having a good time, and, and someone got pretty sentimental, and someone got pretty emotional during the meeting. But I knew what these men were doing there, but I couldn't figure out what all these women were doing on there. And I only concluded the worst. <laughs> so I started picking out which ones I thought were running places and what ones were working. <laughs> this is the way a Romeo work. I don't know. I'm wrong on every score. But that was my first meeting, and I went to meetings every Wednesday night in Akron, Ohio, for 15 months. I missed two of them in that time when I couldn't get through on account of weather. And I went down there all weekends to be with those people. They were the only friends I had. After all these, these years of drinking, I had lost every friend I had. Nobody cared one thing about me, family or otherwise. And these were the first people whoever loved me. I just couldn't keep away from them. I've been around here a good many years. I still don't keep away from these people. And I hope I never shall. One thing that bugs me is how a person can come to this great fellowship, receive the blessings so he gets here, and then walks away and leaves it. This is something, something to be considered. I never did. I was trained differently in AA, and I think the people who came in around that time and shortly after I came in were trained differently, because they still go and they still have enthusiasm for this. I am still an amateur in this fellowship. I have never become a pro. And as an amateur, I reserve the right to criticize any bloody thing I want to in AA. And I do. AA is different than it used to be, and it has to be different, I suppose. I don't say all these differences are good. Some of them stink, but some of them are good. I don't go along with a lot of this jazz that they have in AA today, because I think it's killing people. 
I think AA is a very simple thing. In this miracle of AA, why, ask yourself sometime, why are you here? Why were you chosen to be here? Why was I chosen to be here? When down through the ages of thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history, there has been alcoholism. Think about this. Alcoholism, you read about it in the Bible. You read about it in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis. Read about Noah, how potted he got. He, uh, who else but a Romy would ever pull a stunt that Noah pulled? Who would ever think of that? And why didn't he swat one of those flies? some terrific rummy stories in the Bible. Terrific rummy stories. Gee, I, I love to talk about some of these stories. They did me so much good when I came in. We didn't have this big book that we have now. We didn't have this literature. We didn't have these meeting places. We didn't have all, all this that we have today. But we had to formulate our plan through reading things from the good book. And I read these stories and they read them to me. And they're, they're great stories. And I'd always be a character in this story, usually the hero. Read that story. You know that one of the greatest Rummy stories in the world is the story of the Jericho Road, the Good Samaritan. Just think of that story. Let's talk about that a minute, just for fun. I hadn't intended to, but I, I have to do this. Here's a fella. Laying there, he'd been rolled and beat up and robbed. They even took his clothes, everything. He's lying there drunk. How do I know he's drunk? Well, this priest comes along and he smells him. He turned over and went on the other side of the road and went by. He didn't want to be around him. It's no affair of his. Some drunk got rolled. So what? He shouldn't have been getting drunk in the first place. So he ignores the guy. A Levite comes along. He does likewise. It's poor stiff. He's laying there all beat up and bleeding. He crosses the road, goes on the other side. So along comes this other fellow, this good Samaritan, they call him. You know who he was? He was a traveling salesman. He was, and he was a rummy. He was a first member of AA. And I'll tell you why I know this. This fellow, he comes along and he sees this poor stiff laying there. What does he do? He goes over there, he binds up his wounds, cleans them up a little bit. And he put him on his form of conveyance, whatever it was, and he took him to an inn. Now here's how I know that this guy was a rummy, and I know this other fellow was too, both of them were. He puts this fellow in this inn, and he says to this innkeeper, he says, here's some money. See, he wouldn't give it to the drunk, he'd give it to the innkeeper. He says, here's some money, take care of this guy. And now here's how I know he's a traveling salesman. He says, if you need any more, when I come back through again, I'll pay you whatever is due. So he's a traveling salesman, he's traveling that territory, and he picks this guy up, and he wouldn't trust him with the dough. So this is a AA call, pure and simple. Great AA story. One of the greatest stories in AA stories in the Bible is that story of the prodigal son. Terrific story. Just look at that kid. You know what he did? In those days, the boys, of course, they inherited what was coming to them from the old man when he died. 
they split the inheritance up when the old man died. But this kid, the rummy, he couldn't wait. Does this sound familiar? He couldn't wait till the old man died. He wants his right now. Just like every rummy, you can't wait till tomorrow for anything. It has to be done yesterday already. So he wants it right now. So he aggravates the old man till the old man gives him his portion of the inheritance and away he goes. And what did he do? Does this sound familiar? He says he went out into a far land and he blew the whole bundle in riotous living. Doesn't it say that in the good book? Sure did. So he blew the whole bundle. What happened to him? What happened to us? He wound up out there working for some guy. He's in there working on a farm. There's a famine hits and he can't get anything to eat. And he says, I would eat of the husks of the hogs. He has nothing. He says, my father and all of them have plenty back where I came from. But here I am, desolate. He, here's what he said. He, got, he came to his extremity just like you and I did. But here's what's important. What he saying? He said just what you and I said. He says, I will arise and go to my father. Okay? And that's what he did. But he arose. He didn't lay there. He arose. And he went to his father. And what happened? Did his father wait for him? No, it says in the good story there, it says, his father saw him coming afar off. And he ran to meet him, and he fell upon his neck and kissed him. He says, my son who is dead is alive. He says, let us have music, kill the fatted calf, let us rejoice. So what happened? The Alamans put in on this now. He said, they had a party. They had all this music playing, and the other brother, he'd stayed home all this time, the Alamon guy. Minding his business, doing what the old man told him to do, no imagination. No fun, but he was a dutiful son. And he minded his own business and did what he's supposed to do. So here's what he does, he gets his nose out of joint. He says, what goes on here? All the music, what's this for? The old man says, my son, who was dead has come back. He's alive. The kid says, how come you never had a blast for me like that? Isn't that the way life is? I'd like to hear what the old man told him. You read it. Okay, this is these are great rummy stories. How did I ever get off on that? I was talking about alcoholism and the age of it and how long it's been going on. You read about it in ancient history and mythology all the way down. And you and I, out of a, all these millions of people, a few thousand of us have had this privilege of being introduced to this tremendous fellowship. There must be a reason. If you can't find any other reason for it, why not be very thankful for that? Don't ever, don't ever, ever fail to be thankful. This thing of forgetting to be thankful makes more people go back into a life that they had before than anything else. Now, this program of ours is absolutely foolproof. If we 
accept this program as it is and apply it, it's easy. If this program is not easy for you, take my word for, for it, you are doing it wrong. Does that sound simple enough to you? Now I'll tell you why. You heard a lot of dissertations about this program, and Barbara read the program tonight of 12 Steps, and we've all listened to it, we've read it, we probably recited them. Every person seems to have in AA anymore today their own idea about this way this program should be worked. Well, believe me, if we had this many ideas, we'd be in worse shape than we are now. There's only one way to work this program. I would like to give you my conception about what this program means, why it's written the way it is, and what it's supposed to do, and what you and I are supposed to do. Now, I say this, I make this statement as a person who was here before we had this 12-step program. So it ought to have a little more perhaps weight or authority to it because I helped write this program. Now I'm not waving any flags about this, I just, this is one of these historical things, that's one I just happen to be at the right place at the right time. And I was in on the writing of this program, so I do have some definite ideas about these steps. And I hear some people, all people ask you, what, when should I take this these steps? When should I take the first one? Do I have to take them in rotation? Do I have to read the steps it tells very plainly let me tell you what i think about these steps and what they mean and what they're intended to do and i hope it will help some of you folks so if you need this type of thing i only talk about fundamentals in aa I, I, I never did get to be too modern in aa i don't run for any offices i am not a politician and I don't give a hoot for any politics in AA. I'm a guy that believes in fundamentals and I stick pretty close to them and I, I'm probably the happiest guy in AA. I don't have any headaches. And nobody can argue me out of what I, I'm just too thick-headed to be modern. So let me tell you what I think about this program and maybe you can stay sober 29 years and have fun doing it. I have no use for a guy staying sober and being miserable about it. That isn't the way to do it. Have fun. I'm younger now than I was 29 years ago, I can guarantee you. Because I can do things today I couldn't do then. I know this. Now, originally we started in the Oxford group. Bill Wilson was an Oxford grouper. Evie Thatcher took him in the Oxford group in New York. Doc Smith's Oxford grouper in Akron. He'd been going to the Oxford group two years and a half before he ever met Bill Wilson. But he was drunk every night. That's a big difference. When Bill was approached by Evie Thatcher back in 35 sometime or 34. Turn the tape over. Thatcher, back in 35 sometime or 34, Bill stayed sober. He got to Akron, you read that story, and he met Doc through various means. He finally got together with Doc, and Doc only got drunk once after Bill talked to him. But Doc got interested and got enthused and got working on alcoholics in the Oxford movement in Akron, Ohio. And being a medical doctor, he had access to the city hospital in Akron. He was on the staff there, and he used to wheedle his drunks into Akron under, under uh, some pretenses. I know that he didn't put any of them in for alcoholism. I know my diagnosis was acute gastritis. 
And I suppose I had that too. But I, that's what was on my chart. And uh, Doc had that advantage. He could put fellas out of circulation and put them in the hospital and sold them up safely. So the AA went along very well in the Akron area, in the Oxford group. It didn't go too hot in New York for a long time. And uh, Doc was a spiritually motivated man. He was a medical doctor, a man of science, but he was very spiritually motivated. Doc was. He would continuously quote scripture. He had things that he would answer. You'd ask him questions, he'd answer them in scripture to you. One of Doc's favorites, and I, I think it's one of mine, he used to say, we talk about these first things first, you know. He'd say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This is where our first things first came from. Doc used to use this a lot. Well, they, the Oxford movement, we were born in that, and the Oxford movement were a bunch of people trying to live good lives according to spiritual principles. And uh, what they called it was life-changing. When we wrote our program of AA, this was a life-changing program. This was not a sobriety program. You don't see the word sobriety in our program. You show me where it is in the 12 Steps and I'll eat the magazine. See? This is a life-changing program. And in order to change a person's life, there has to be some things evident. The first thing has to be evident is the need for a change. So I claim that our program is divided into four phases. So the need is in the first step where we admit our four phases in, a, in our program are this way. They're admission, submission, restitution, and construction. The first step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's our first step. That's the admission. Okay, we got a place to start. So what? If we're going to change our lives and we're, our life is unmanageable, we have to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. So the second through the seventh steps are the steps of submission. Read, let me read these second through seventh steps. The second one says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Some people quarrel about that sanity bit. I'm glad that that's in there, boy. That takes me off the hook. I'd hate to think that some of the things I did when I was drinking, I did are acts of a sane man. So. I came to believe it. Why did I come to believe it? I came to believe it because of the example of these other men. They told me their stories. I wanted what they had. They told me that a power helped them. I wanted that, so I wanted to believe it. That's how I came to believe it. And I think that's how most of us do. Third step, it says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Wait, first we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of this God. We made a decision. When you ask an alcoholic to turn his will and his life over to the care of some ethereal creature here of whom he knows very little and probably scared out, this is doing a lot, you know? I think that that step there uh, is a where you separate the men from the boys. You either hurt badly enough to do it or you don't. 
But when you make a decision to turn your will and your life over the care of God, that's, if you don't hurt a whole lot, you're not going to do it. So then we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I don't think that any alcoholic worthy of the name is capable of doing that step by himself. I think it requires the help of a knowledgeable person or a sponsor. The next step suggests that there was someone at our elbow and helped us with it because it says we admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. This doesn't mean we stand up here in public and undress in front of everybody. This is quite different than that. It says here we admit it to God, ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. That's where we make our confession. And it says the next step we were entirely ready entirely ready, not kind of ready or about to be, it's entirely. An alcoholic does, he's entirely in everything he does. He says, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. All of them, all of them. There's some defects of character I'd like to keep. Very interesting ones. The program don't allow for that. And this is where a lot of people flop. They make up their own program. The program don't call for any deviation from this. And it says, we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. We humbly ask Him. We didn't make a deal. We didn't say, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that, like we used to do when we were drunk. No, we humbly asked Him to remove these shortcomings. All right, that's, this, that's our second phase. That's the admission and submission. We have now submitted our will and our lives to the care of God. We've actually done this. All right, we're in the next phase. If we're going into a new life, we can't make a new life unless we try to clean up something in the old. We can't, as a good book says, we can't put new wine in old casks, in old bottles. Now, we have to make restitution, so the next phase is restitution. It says we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. That attitude of willingness to make amends to everybody is what's important, because obviously we can't make amends to everyone. We don't know every person we've harmed, and some people are not available anymore. We just have to leave that to God. The next step says we made a list of all persons, uh, and it says we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So then our restitution is made. Now I want to make a statement here, and I want you to listen very quiet, very carefully to this statement. So I made a state, this statement in a group one time and started a riot. We got a lot of this unity we talk about after this. Uh, after we have taken nine steps in AA, you can forget those nine steps. You're done with them. You never have to be concerned about those first nine steps anymore, except in two instances. If you resign and resume, you're going to have to go all through them again. Or if you're trying to explain this program to a new person, you have to know what these nine stand for. But for your own use, you never have to use them anymore unless you get drunk, unless you quit AA. Remember that. But you must do the nine. And when you have done the nine steps, something has happened to you. Your life has changed. It can't help but change because you admitted that you can't do anything yourself and you have asked God to take these problems and to help you. And it says in a good book, anything you ask believing, he shall receive. 
If you have that type of faith, you are through drinking. You are done with it. But you must take those nine. That should answer a lot of questions about people when they talk about how I should take these steps. They're written in a rotation, purposely. There's a reason why they come the way they are. And I've tried to outline this reason as briefly as possible. Now, you've done nine steps. What happens? The last phase of this program is a phase of construction. Here's where we construct the life. The last three steps are the steps we live by. The tenth step says we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. Can you imagine a rummy who has not had his life changed admitting anything? He won't even admit it's raining outside. It might involve him in something. She admits things. I'll tell you, it'd be nice. I know that none of you people have ever been in court. But if you have, if someday, if you have time, it's your civic duty. You should get down and listen to what goes on in these courts someday. See what people are doing with your money and with your time. You'll see some guy drunk, drunk up there. He's been drunk. He's out driving a car. He's got a DWI against him. He's wrecked a couple automobiles. He's gone through a storefront. He's tipped over a milk wagon. He fought the police, and he winds up in jail. And he comes out, and he's out there in the court. They read the charge against him, or all the charges. And the judge looks at him and says, you were drunk. Mm. Not me. You were drinking. Nope, not him. After a lot of cajoling, he'll finally break down and he'll admit to having had a couple of beers. You know, there's nobody ever gets in trouble drinking whiskey, but that, those guys that had a couple of beers, they raise hell. Don't ever admit anything. It might involve you. So here it is. We continue to take personal inventory. This is our day by day. This is an important step. This is something, maybe I can tell you how I take mine every day. It might be helpful to someone. Every night when I lie down in bed, the last thing before I go to sleep, I have my little prayer time. And I think about my day. And I think about what I've done today. Sometimes I'm not too proud of some of the things I've done today. And, some, and sometimes I am. If I'm proud of something I did, I, I give myself credit. You're a good boy today. You did all right there. If I haven't, I owe somebody an apology. I try to do it. I try to take care of that as soon as possible. This is what the tenth step means to me. This keeps those little things from growing into big things. Because it's the little things that kill us. It's not the big things. There's not too many big things happen to any of us. But every day of our life, there's numerous little things that we have to contend with. And those are the things that are really throw us, not the big things. So that tenth step keeps us conscious of how we're conducting ourselves every day and straightening up the things as we go along. Things won't build up on us that way. It's great insurance. It's a great way to live, really is. You might know that, most of you. Some of you probably don't. Let's get in that eleventh step. What is this step? It's a tremendous step. Why? This 11th step is a beginning of a prayer life. It teaches us how to begin a prayer life. Listen to this step very carefully. Listen to the wording of it. It's tremendous, this step. 
says here, we sought through prayer and meditation. We're seeking something, it says. We sought through prayer and meditation. What's that? What's prayer and meditation? Prayer is talking to God. Listening, uh, meditation is listening to Him. We have to talk and we have to listen. The good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth. What does that suggest to you? I thought so. We sought through prayer and meditation. What are we seeking through prayer and meditation? To establish a conscious contact with God. What does that mean? I want to feel that he's here. And I can feel him. I can touch him. I can talk to him. I can be at one with him. A conscious contact. Just as though I can go over and touch this fellow, put my arm around him. This is what I want to feel. I don't want to feel that my God is way beyond the stars where I can't reach him. The step tells me otherwise. I must establish this conscious contact with God. Now, it says something else there. What does it say? It says, I'm praying for something. What am I praying for? It says, I'm praying only, only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. That step doesn't say anything about praying for sobriety. You've already got that. You don't have to pray for sobriety. God has given you sobriety in those first nine steps. You've got it. You're not praying for a new job, a new yacht, or a new wife, or a new husband, or a new home, or anything like that. We're only praying for knowledge of God's will. What does God want me to do? And I want the power to carry it out. The good book tells us he will never put anything on us that he doesn't give us the power to perform. Do you believe that? Do you have faith you believe that? That's the 11th step. That starts us on a prayer life. After we get into a prayer life, there's a lot of things we can do later on, but this is our beginning. This is what we need. This is simple for people like you and me who need such a thing. These, the words in these, these 200 well-chosen words in our steps are profound, yet so simple. Trouble is most of us try to complicate it so. The last step. Here's one for you. This last step. People say to me, they come and ask me, when should a person do 12-step work? For heaven's sake, read the steps. They'll tell you. Here's when you should do 12-step work. It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. There's a lot of people running around doing what they call tossed stuff where they ought to be home knitting. They have no business. They got there carrying a message they don't have. This program is a tremendous gift. step doesn't say anything about praying for sobriety. You've already got that. You don't have to pray for sobriety. God has given you sobriety in those first nine steps. You've got it. You're not praying for a new job, a new yacht, or a new wife, or a new husband, or a new home, or anything like that. We're only praying for knowledge of God's will. What does God want me to do? And I want the power to carry it out. The good book tells us he will never put anything on us that he doesn't give us the power to perform. Do you believe that? 
You have faith, you believe that. That's the 11th step. That starts us on a prayer life. After we get into a prayer life, there's a lot of things we can do later on, but this is our beginning. This is what we need. This is simple for people like you and me who need such a thing. These, the words in these, these 200 well-chosen words in our steps are profound, yet so simple. Trouble is most of us try to complicate it so. The last step, here's one for you. This last step, people say to me, they come and ask me, when should a person do 12-step work? For heaven's sake, read the steps, they'll tell you. Here's when you should do 12-step work. It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. There's a lot of people running around doing what they call 12-step work. They ought to be home knitting. They have no business. They're out there carrying a message they don't have. This program is a tremendous gift to you and I, the gift of God. We'd better, by golly, do what's right by it and with it. It puts a responsibility on us. I listened to this psychiatrist this morning talking or this afternoon. I've listened to a lot of those guys in 28 years. I've been on committees with them over the years. I have nothing against anybody who's trying to do something. But they are still talking the same jazz that I heard 29 years ago. They're about to do something. <laughs> Hell's bells, we've been doing things. And we listen to a lot of this stuff and we'll quit doing things. And we have been listening to a lot of stuff in the us throwing rocks in our path, too. We're depending on other people to do our job sometimes. We're re depending on some remote outfit somewhere or some organization to do things for us that you and I should be doing. I was talking to Dewey Spees about this today. Dewey remembers, he came in this thing many years ago, and they trained him right. He might be an S.O. something around here to some of you people. But you ain't kidding him much about A.A. But he was brought in the hard way. And he had some tough taskmasters. And he got the benefit of it. And a lot of people profited thereby. We're talking about this. There's things going on in this fellowship that you and I better be pretty smart about. If we think we're so all fired smart, we better use some of it in protecting what we have here because our efficiency is going to is diminishing in some areas because we're depending on someone else to do the job you and I should be doing. There is no substitute for man-to-man -man work and contact in AA. Every individual, every person that comes into this fellowship requires individual attention. Alcoholics are different than other people, and don't ever let anybody kid you that they're not. I hear people say, oh, we're just like everybody. I hate hear anybody say that we're different. Well, believe me, we are different, and I'll tell you why. 
I probably know more alcoholics than anybody alive. I know them all over the country and out of the country, and I know some of them very intimately, many of them. And I've noticed something about alcoholics. I didn't read this in books either. I've learned this by personal contact with them. The alcoholic is a type. And I'll tell you something else. Everybody can't be an alcoholic. A lot of people don't have sense enough. And I don't care how much drinking some people do, they'll never make this. They'll never be an alky. They can't be it. I don't care what. You have to be made a certain way or put together a certain way or chosen for something to be an alcoholic. Now, alcoholics all have definite characteristics that are alike. I've never seen an alcoholic yet worthy of the name. I'm not talking about just ordinary drunks. There's a lot of drunks, there's a lot of alcoholics. Every alcoholic is a drunk, but every drunk is not an alcoholic. I've been around a lot of drunks when I was on the skids. They're not alcoholics. I drank with a lot of drunks back in WPA days who were not alcoholics. They drank as much as I did. They're not alkies. Alky is different. I was, I remember one instance, this is an example of this. I don't mind staying here if you don't. I remember years ago when I was drinking with some of the jugheads around WPA. I hadn't seen them in many years. I came in, I disappeared, went on the bum, came back, got into AA, and I was sober for some years. This was about 15 years ago, 16 years ago. I got dreadfully ill. I had a series of five throat operations in different cancer clinics, and I was between operations at this one time. And I went downtown. I was living in Cleveland at that time, and I went down to see the ball game at the lakefront. I wanted to see the Yankees play. I wanted to see Joe DiMaggio. And I went down there. And on the way down, I ran right smack dab into five of these guys who I used to drink with in WPA days. These fellows and I had been arrested together, jugged together. One night we stole a new police car. I mean, we were, that's, that's the kind of gang they were. And we scrounge and we stole, we do all kinds of things. And these fellows drank as much as I did. And here I ran smack dab in them. I hadn't seen them in years. I'd been sober for so many years by that time. And they said, Snyder, you old goat. We thought you were dead long ago. Now here I am. I said, come in and have a drink. So I stopped in one of those saloons on Superior Street down the way down to the stadium. And I watched those guys. First thing I noticed about them, they were all dressed up. They had their sport shirts on and their sport trousers and two-tone shoes and they were all dolled up with Ponji shirts and the whole bit. And each one of those guys had a box seat ticket for the ball game stuck in his pocket here, see? Cost about three bucks a piece. And they got in that saloon and they were throwing them in with two hands, just like they used to when I drank with them 15 to 16 years before. And I watched this performance and they got through and they went on their merry way to the ball game. And I looked at this bunch. You think they're alcoholics? If they'd been alcoholics, if that had been me, I wouldn't have had that Ponji shirt on in the first place. And I know I wouldn't have been blowing three or four dollars for a box seat to a ball game. Not by a jug full. 
And here those fellas, after all these years, they're still able to drink. They're back in business, making money, and they're in society. Since I had seen them last, I wound up on the bum. I lost everything in the world, and I started a new life completely all these years. And all it would take for me is to take one drink with those apes. And they could still drink like this, and I'd be back there on the waterfront. It's as simple as it is. They're not alcoholics. I've never met an alcoholic in my life who was not a high-strung individual. I've never met one who is not very a very quick thinker. You don't find any alcoholics who are deep thinkers. That's why you very seldom find these pipe smokers. Once in a while you'll find a freak in AA who smokes a pipe, but you'll find a freak anywhere. But they eat these cigarettes. They eat, they smoke them three of them at a time, they don't know it. I'm a salesman, and when I walk into some guy's office and he's smoking a pipe, I turn right around and walk out. I'll starve to death before this guy could ever make up his mind to do anything. But the rummy, he'll do something. You can bet on that. He's the busiest guy in the world. He's going to he's doing something. The alcoholic is a very sensitive soul. He's always going around looking for somebody to hurt his feelings. <laughs> he's an extremist. He never does anything by halfway measures. It's whole hog or nothing with a rummy. He's an idealist, and he's a great guy. He has deep feeling. Do you know why we succeed with alcoholics and all these learned people can't? You know why? It's very simple. And these people will never learn, they'll never acknowledge this. I've talked to umpteen hundred psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers, and what have you, and people who are interested in in this alcoholic problem, and I try to point this out to them, and they look at me like I'm something from Mars. I say, listen, you go ahead. We've got the same bloody thing down in Florida. We've got a program down there that should be anything in the world. We've got a beautiful spot where we can put alcoholics. They go down there for 28 days, and it's like a summer resort. It's beautiful. I only know of two people who ever came out of that place in the years it's been running who ever stayed sober, and there's been thousands of them go down there. Why? They give them lectures. They show them moving pictures of what happens to their liver, <laughs> their stomach. They promise them they're going to lose their job if they keep drinking. They promise them they're going to lose their family. They're going to lose a lot of things. That's good. They all promised me that years ago and it all happened too. <laughs> but they give them all this logic and common sense and they give them what they call therapy, group therapy. They get a bunch of failures together that never have stayed sober telling each other how they should do it. This is great. So you know what difference there is in our fellowship and in all these rehabilitation plans by these experts? They don't know this and you can't tell them. But an alcoholic doesn't do things by logic and common sense. He does things by feeling. Until he feels a certain way, he's not about to do anything. 
And when he feels, he acts. He's an emotional person. And unless we work with him through his emotions, there's no chance of ever moving an alcoholic. That's why they said in the old Oxford group, man's extremity is God's opportunity. When you feel you're done, they talk in the air, the bottom, you're ready. You have to feel a certain way. Same way in our steps. If you don't feel a certain way, you're not going to take that third step. You're not going to give up your will and your gut to God unless you feel really defeated. When you feel that you want something really badly, that's what you'll get. When we go out to see an alcoholic, why do the amateurs succeed? Why, when we go out, I go out and call on this chap, he's in despair. What do I have to do with him? What's my job when I go out to see him on a 12-step call? The first thing I have to do with him is make him believe in me. He has to have confidence in me. He has to believe me. Then I must make him want what I have. This BS I hear about attraction and promotion. Whoever invented that? This is the greatest promotion job in the world, and you better believe it. Who's going to be attracted to come to a bunch of drunks? This is a lot of hogwash. The attraction comes after we are meet and are together. But no drunk way out here is going to read some newspaper and be attracted to us or think that because somebody says there's a button to find what's a drunk down here, they're sober, go meet them. They ain't coming down here. This is a serious job. I can say this without fear of any criticism because, brothers and sisters, when I came in this thing, I had to sell this. If I didn't, there wouldn't be any guys here. I wouldn't have any group in Cleveland. I got some guys from Cleveland will tell you this. They know me. They know what happened. They were in soon enough after I came in to know this. I was out. I bothered everybody about this thing. I went on this bar stool hopping and dragging guys out of saloons and out of this and out of that. I did everything. Tried to get my first rummy. I never felt I'd really belong to this fellowship till I'd sponsored someone. And it took me a long, long time before I got my first man, too. And when I did, I got him because I had a message to carry. That's why it took me seven long months of fruitless effort and disappointments before I got my first man in AA, seven months. And I talked to hundreds of them. But why, what's my job when I come out there? I feel something for that guy. I am not a professional, but I have a feeling for him, that guy or that gal that I'm out there to work on. And I have a feeling for them that I have for nobody else. And I don't care who he is or how, what condition he's in, or what side of the tracks he came from, anything about that, it means nothing to me. He's an alcoholic, there's something that goes between us. And this happens so many times, that we were talking about this last night. I'm invited to go out different places to make talks like I'm here. I can remember a couple instances that happened just this summer, this year. I went to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Who ever heard of that place? You take four planes from Tampa and you wind up in the end of the line up in Regina. That's as far as they go. From that point on, you take dog teams, I guess. And I don't know a soul in Moose Jaw or Regina or any place else. But they asked me to come up, and I went up. 
I got off this plane on Friday night along with 60 or 70 other guys. All these salesmen are going home on Friday night and the plane was full of men. And I walk up into that, into that airport and all these 60 or 70 other guys are walking along with me. And those AAs are standing up there waiting for me. Why didn't they walk up to one of those other 60 or 70, but they say, there he is. <laughs> they know me. And I didn't have any rose in my hair either. They don't know me for Adam, from Adam. The same thing happened down in Kansas City this summer. I could hear him holler way back there. There he is, there he is, in the way back here. Why is this? Why do they recognize me? Why, when you walk down the street sometimes, some panhandler, he'll pass 15 people and bingo. He'll put the arm on you. You can't tell me that there isn't something between us that other people don't experience. I know better than this. I've had years and years of it. And it happens all the time. I don't have to smell them to tell them. I feel them. And you do too. And this is our big secret, is the feeling that we have for each other. And this love, and this affection, and this regard. This is a love that don't quit. I was indoctrinated properly in AA by my sponsor and the people who preceded me. I was taught that this is my first responsibility and my only thing in life was to help other people in this regard, other alcoholics. They told me I had a talent to do this and I believed it. And they told me I better exercise this talent. And they told me the story, the parable of the talents. And they told me what would happen if I didn't use my talent, I would lose it. So far, I have tried my best to use it. So far, I'm having a good time in life. I hope to continue. This is the greatest fellowship in the world. There's nothing like it. And it's a fellowship that's not based on promises. It's not based on any type of oaths we have to take. It's not based on any common sense or anything else. Everything in AA is asked backwards to everything in, in common sense. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, they, some people are trying to put common sense into AA. Watch out for those guys. <laughs> One thing that always bugs me in AA is I see that unity. I remember the first unity we had. It's when we broke out of the Oxford group. Brother, what a riot. I remember the next unity I was connected with was when we had our first split in Cleveland. We didn't split in two groups, we split in three. This was real unity. Finally, some other guys get unifi unified and they think they can run the group better than everybody else. And bingo, away we go again. That's why we have thousands of groups. A lot of this stuff that we read about, think about this sometimes. See how ridiculous some of this stuff is that are trying to hand us. This is a simple program. I have tried to go into the program here tonight, our program of 12 steps. I told you what the steps mean, what they'll do for us, what they'll do for you as an individual. All we have to do is accept them, work them, live with them, and be happy. As I said before, if it's hard, you're not doing it right. This is an easy program. It has to be easy because none of us are able to cope with anything tough when we get here. We've, we've, we've run out of gas when we get here. We have to have something easy. And it's easy to turn this 
whole matter over to God and do our part and live and have a swell life together. Thank you very much for coming. Cleveland, but I guess I left Cleveland just shortly after this conference began. I moved south about 12 years ago, and uh, but here I am, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. As Julian says, he better get off and let me get on with this because he knows. I. Uh, was told to limit my talk tonight, so I will just spend the first hour and a half talking about myself. <laughs> Second hour, I'll talk about the program. It's certainly wonderful to see a crowd like this gathered together, and you look so grand out there. I wish everyone could see it from this vantage point. Anytime I see a good-looking bunch like this together, it always reminds me of a story. I'm not too much of a storyteller. But this one story I do like, and this always reminds me of it. it uh, it's about Jerry, the town drunk. Maybe you, some of you folks have heard this story. This Jerry, he had never been seen sober many, many years. He drunk all the time. And Jerry was, he always had a dirty beard. He never had a haircut. He was filthy. His feet were, bare feet were on the ground. There's holes in his britches, and he stunk. This was normal for Jerry, always drunk. Time went on, many years went on, and finally Jerry turned up his toes and died. And this presented a problem in the town. They had to bury him. He had no one who would claim him. So the town had to get together and they got an undertaker who furnished a casket and got him a new suit and shaved him up and cleaned him up real nice. And they got him prepared for burial. Then they had to get a preacher to take care of the funeral sermon. It was kind of a tough job to get a preacher to do this job. Finally, they got one. And this preacher, he came up there to give the funeral sermon, oration. And he was stumped. He just didn't know quite what to say. So he says, well, folks, he says, I, I admit, I just don't know what to say about Jerry. You all knew him. We all knew him here. We knew him for what he was. He says, but I'd just like you all to do one thing. Says, I'd like you all to come up here and take a good look at Jerry and see how good he looks since he quit drinking. <laughs> I think this happens to all of us in a more or less degree. I'm glad we all didn't have to die get this compliment. People change very quickly in AA when they come here. I think every person here is a miracle. Every one of us. I know in my case I, it had to be a miracle that I ever arrived here. I'd like to tell you just how I did get into this fellowship. As Julian mentioned, I had my 25th anniversary last February. And at that time, there was no AA. This is the way we do things. Everything starts backwards. This was not known as AA in those days. And uh, I had, yet I got in it, see. No AA, but I got in it. 
I was on the bum, and I was having trouble at home, and my wife was giving me my last chance to make good at home. And this was on the premise that I should go to work for her brother, bless his heart. This was quite a family I was mixed up with in those days. This is not the wife I have now, I might say without, uh, I won't have to mention that. Uh, he drove a truck, he had a truck that ran between Cleveland and New York. And they told me that if I would take a job as his assistant and learn how to drive this truck, that I could prove to them that I wasn't this drunken so-and-so that they were all calling me and accusing me of being. Why, they'd give me another chance at home. So there's nothing I could do but accept this challenge. Now, I'm a fellow who does not believe in work. I never did. And getting sober hasn't changed this very much either. But the idea of driving one of those big outfits was, this was really out of this world. But I had to go ahead with this deal. So I told him I would, so away we went. This was in the fall of the year. And we headed for New York. I didn't arrive in New York sober. I got away from him in Albany. And I remember this. I uh, remember that Albany was the capital of New York. And I suddenly developed a keen desire to see the government buildings. He had to take a nap that evening, so I got out and got away from him. And you know what happened. But I got back, and he was sleeping on the seat there, and I stepped on the poor boy's face getting up into the sleeping part of the cab, and he knew what was wrong. He carried me out of New York and threw me out on the waterfront, and there I was. Well, I uh, had no money, I had no clothes, I had no nothing. I had a sister-in-law, another sister of his, bless her heart, in Yonkers. And uh, she used to think I was pretty good. She, thought, she always used to refer to me as her favorite brother-in-law. This was some time before this, however. And I went out to see Virginia, thought maybe she'd look after me. Here I was in a town of seven or eight million people, and I didn't know a soul. I made my way out to Yonkers, and I remembered I'd gone there on my honeymoon to when we first gotten married, so I knew that she lived way up on top of a hill. When I got out there, I didn't go up on a hill, I went down a hill and got in this Italian section down there. And I met some very nice people, and they were drinking wine. And you know what happened. By the time I got up to Virginia's place, I was really potted. I was boiled. And I can only remember one thing about this trip to Virginia's house. I was rolling around on the floor with her two kids. She didn't like this. She didn't, took a dim view of this, and she put me in the back of her car and drove me down to that waterfront and dumped me out where her brother had dumped me. So I was in New York without a dime, without a friend, without anything, period. And a winter sitting in. I don't know how long I stayed in New York. That's not important, but I existed there a long, long time. I tell this story for this reason, that eventually, this played a big part in my coming into AA. It seems that sometime later, Virginia had her doctor over about one of the kids, and they got to talking about drinking. And she told this doctor about this drunken brother-in-law of hers, and what a nice guy he used to be and what a slob he is now. 
And the doctor says, you know, that's odd. He says, I used to have a drunken brother-in-law like that, too. But he met some cult or other, and they do nothing but, he does nothing but run around fixing drunks. And besides his brother-in-law, there's a doctor down in Akron, Ohio, who's in this strange cult, and he spends all his time doing this. And this doctor suggested that if I should ever land back in Cleveland, maybe they could send me to this doctor down there, and maybe he could fix me. Well, he was referring to Dr. Smith, Dr. Bob, Doc Smith in Akron. This doctor Virginia was talking to happened to be Dr. Leonard Strong, who is Bill Wilson's brother-in-law. Now, at that time, there was, there was no AA. There were probably, probably a half a dozen, six, eight, ten people that had ever been exposed to this plan through the old Oxford group. Sometime later, I got back to Cleveland. I got a ride back with another truck driver. And I met, he took me to Erie, and from Erie I beat my way in, and I got back home, and I tried to get in the nest, but it no, didn't work. The little woman met me at the door, and she was pleasant enough, so long as I was outside. And uh, she told me about this doctor in Akron, Ohio, and asked me if I'd like to go down and see him. So what could I lose? Sure, I'll go down and see him. So she bought me a one-way bus ticket, put me on a bus and sent me to Akron. And this was my first meeting with Doc Smith. Now, the first time I went down there, I got down there very early in the morning. It was a winter time. Everything happens to me in zero weather. I don't know why this is. It's always lousy weather when anything happens to me. And I got into this Second National Bank building in Akron. I went up to the floor where Doc's office was, and he wasn't in. And I can recall, I was afraid to leave the building. It was warm in there, but I was afraid to get out if I'd never get back again. So I stayed there, and I paraded up and down in front of that up in that lobby in front of his door for what seemed an awful long time. And I was wondering what this doctor was going to do to me and what about him and so forth and so on. I was all shaky. I was sick. I hadn't had a drink that morning. And I can remember every time I walked past his office door there, I'd read his name on the door. It says, Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith, rectal surgeon. <laughs> This is the guy that's going to fix me. <laughs> well, you know, by the time you arrive at the place in your drinking career that I was at that time, you're ready for anything. <laughs> and this, in my fogged up way, didn't seem unreasonable. Finally, Doc came in, and he ushered me through a couple offices into his back room. And I was prepared to tell him all about my symptoms and my troubles, but he didn't allow me to do this. He took the ball away from me and he told me all about himself, all about which actually was my story. And I figured he was talking about me all the time. And I couldn't figure out how this guy knew so much about me. I'd never seen him before. And I got suspicious. Now, there are people here from Cleveland. They may remember this some of the older people from Cleveland, they're older in years. At that time, they were having a, what they call the torso murder mysteries in Cleveland. 
They were finding bits of bodies wrapped in newspaper over in Kingsbury Run. And uh, they never identified any of these bodies except finally one. There was a woman they found. There were seven or eight men's bodies that they found all cut up. And, but they identified this woman because her fingerprints. It was the only woman that was involved in the deal. But she had fingerprints. She had a, a police record. But these men, they never identified. And uh, the newspapers at that time assumed that this, they called him the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, whoever this character was. They figured he was either a butcher or a doctor that had gone berserk. And the reason they figured out, because he knew a lot about anatomy, he had a good technique in cutting up these bodies. He was doing this for kicks. And uh, this doctor, knowing so much about me, he resolved for putting me in a goonie roost out in Cuyahoga Falls, where, where he, as he explained, people couldn't get to me. Well, about this time, this was going through my head, and I was all for people getting to me. <laughs> so I up and beat it on him. I saw my chance, and I ran out of his office and beat it and disappeared. But you know, I can never forget this man. He, something happened to me. And sometime later, I was sitting there in a bottle gang. I was with a bunch of jugheads I used to drink with, and uh, we got talking about one of our favorite subjects. I think I started at this time. We got start talking about quitting drinking. And this was a high spot in my drinking career, this particular get-together, this little tete-a-tete we had. As I remember, I brought this thing out. I, told him that I was going to quit drinking. And this brought a lot, this evoked a lot of, of response. One blabbermouth fella in particular. And now remember, we're all drunk. This is a kettle calling the pot black and so forth. This one blabbermouth, he says, you, you'll never quit drinking. He says, you don't have guts enough to quit drinking. I says, I'll show you. I know a doctor down in Akron will fix me. He says, nobody can fix me. You, you're no good. He says, quit drinking, he says, takes determination. He says, to have determination, you need a chin. He says, you got a chin like Andy Gump. <laughs> you're no good. I says, I'll show you. And you know, I think this was the last vestige of pride that I had left in me. I had to do something about it. So I got a hold of someone's phone. If I live to be a thousand, I'll probably never find out whose it was. But someone got a fine phone bill because all these calls to Akron are long distance. And I don't know whose phone it was because we didn't have phones where we were. But somebody got a swell bill because Doc told me I called him numerous times that day. I only remember calling him once. But he told me to meet him at Akron City Hospital in the morning and I did. I made it down there. And that was my beginning of this, in this way of life. Now, things were quite a bit different in those days than they are now. As I said before, this was not known as AA at that time. This was known as the Oxford Group. And uh, we had a lot of different uh, little things we went through in the Oxford Group forms and ceremonies that we don't have in AA today. That was my beginning, and I went to Akron for 15 months, and I missed two meetings in all that time. I used to spend a lot of time on weekends with those people. Either I'd be down there or they'd be in Cleveland. 
After 15 months, we started our first group in Cleveland. And we had about a dozen fellows who were going to Cleveland. Some of them had wives. And uh, we had quite a contingent that went down there every week. And there was a there was difficulties coming up between the alcoholics and the earth people, the Oxford group people. The, there was frictions, and there were a lot of reasons why alcoholics had to be by themselves and break away from this. Uh, during the 1938, I came in in February 38, during the fall of 38, the book was written, and the 12 steps were written. And uh, the book was published in February of 39. When we started our group in Cleveland, we started it as Alcoholics Anonymous. We took the name from the book. Cleveland, Ohio was the first group that started as Alcoholics Anonymous. New York and Akron started in the Oxford group, and they eventually switched into the AA name. So that's something, a little history you Clevelanders probably can take home with you. At any rate, <coughs> we, uh, we started on a different basis. In the Oxford group, we used to operate on the four principles of the four absolutes of absolute honesty, unselfishness, purity, and love. And the AA book was written, the 12 steps were written. 12 steps were written as a way of life, a way to change a person's life. It was felt that the only way an alcoholic could recover was by a complete change of his life. You know, this thing of alcoholism, let's talk about it in a moment. It's, a, it's an old, old thing. Alcoholism is as old as history's recorded. We read about the exploits of alcoholics in the Bible. We read about it in ancient history. We read about it way back. We read about Noah. Even old Noah got potted. Remember that story. Now, this is a long time ago. And all these years, things have been tried to change this thing of alcoholism cure alcoholics, help them, shoot them, anything. A lot of things have been tried. And nothing was ever successful until about the last 25 years or so, since the last few years. Now, why is this? Uh, you know, alcoholism to me uh, is, uh, some people, they, they have some very peculiar notions about what it is. You hear people talk about it being a habit. It's not a habit. We could break any habit we have. We never could break alcoholism as a habit. Some people talk about alcoholism being a matter of a taste. Holy smokes, I, if you think this is a taste, if anyone's got that notion, I wish they'd try some of this stuff I was drinking at the end. I paid seven cents a pint for my booze and I bought it in a wallpaper store. <laughs> Believe me, I didn't drink this for its palatable qualities. It's neither a habit nor is it a taste. If it were a habit or a taste, we wouldn't lose our families, our jobs, our friends, everything that's near and dear to us. Not, a, not by a long shot. Alcoholism is an obsession. It's a condition of the mind. It's an illness. It's an illness, however, that I'm quite sure we'll never discover a pill or a potion that will ever cure. Alcoholism has to be handled in a different way. All these years, these many, many years, People, you and I have had the same treatment. We've had all this good advice. People have given me some of the finest advice. I've had a million dollars worth of good advice before I ever got to AA. People told me if I didn't quit drinking, what was going to happen to me? And boy, they were right. See? 
But it happened. It didn't stop me. And they told you the same thing. They told me what was going to happen to my liver. They told me what was going to happen to my head. What's going to happen to this? What's going to happen? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my family? Am I going to lose my self-respect? Am I going to lose everything? I did. So what? I wanted to get out of this thing of alcoholism. I couldn't. You know, all these people who have tried, and there's a lot of people still trying, and why they fail with us, with you and I as alcoholics. One big reason why they fail is they assume that you and I are logical thinking creatures. Every time, I hope there's not one here, but every time I get up on one of these podiums and I see that sign think on there, I turn it over. I don't want to offend anyone. They think that we can think. An alcoholic don't think. An alcoholic feels. And he never acts on anything until he feels a certain way. So the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has to change us in the way we feel about things, about ourselves and about everything else. We are an emotional people. We act on emotions, not on sound judgment. That's something that a lot of people never find out. That's why so many of these programs fail with alcoholics. And that's why you and I in AA are able to transmit something or communicate with an alcoholic successfully. This is a doggonest outfit in the world. You walk into an AA meeting, you meet a bunch of people you've never seen before in your life, and in 10 minutes you're telling them all your secrets, things you wouldn't even tell your mother. And everybody laughs about it. Okay? This is, this is something. You know, you have to be a total failure before you're qualified to get in here. I, I got a big kick out of one time. I, I happened to be a salesman. I'm, I work for an insurance company. And you know how these insurance outfits are. Any of you fellas that have been in the sales field know that they are the exponents of the biggest bunch of bull in the world. And uh, we have these conventions every year, and they get all the men in to the home office, and they want to tell you what's going to happen next year and what you're supposed to do and, and all the new stuff coming out. And they give you, they wind you and dine you and show you a big time make you feel like a big wheel but they always do one thing they always have a high-powered speaker to talk to the men I remember a couple of years ago I was up to home office and they had they really had a honey this boy was really something they had up there he was a man from General Motors and he spent all this time going around talking to sales organizations and uh, he really had a pitch that really stopped them all. But today he was talking about success. And he went on and on talking about eat success, think success, dream success, everything is success. He just pound that success thing home, boom, 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 see? And then he winds up and he says, you never heard of anybody standing up in, bunch of, in front of a bunch of people and bragging about being a failure, did you? I says, Buster, I got news for you. This is the one fellowship in the world where we do everything. If we do everything diametrically opposite of what we would in good business practice, we make a huge success. And that's about right. This thing of alcoholism it only affects certain people. There's a lot of people who can never become one of us, no matter how hard they try. I think the privilege of being an alcoholic is reserved for a chosen few. 
I used to drink with a lot of jugheads who drank an awful lot of whiskey and booze and different kinds of things. It never, they are not alcoholics. They can quit whenever they find some hobby that's more engaging. But not us. Not us. No siree. I know this because I've proven this. Uh, the alcoholic is a breed of cats all his own. And as I say, everybody can't make this league. This is a real exclusive league. And I get a big kick out of a lot of these birds that I've met around in AA. Uh, some of these fellas who have drank themselves down to the last two second yacht or something like this. And other people I meet, well, take some people outside of AA. They belong to some fancy country club. They pay five, ten thousand dollars for a membership and probably cost them two or five thousand dollars a year to belong to them. They think they really belong to something great, you know? And probably it is, you know. But did you ever stop to figure out what your entrance requirement is to get into this league? Anybody who get in here under fifty thousand bucks is sneaked in. <laughs> Believe me, I value my membership here. And it's a wonderful thing, and it is a miracle that we're all here. If you don't think this is a miracle, think about this sometime. Go home and think about this. Of all these years that we've been drinking, and all these years that these alcoholics have been walking across the face of the earth for centuries, just a few thousand of us in the last few years have had this opportunity. And there's a lot of, there's millions other ones who will probably never have this chance that'll follow us. But why did you and I get this chance? This is a miracle. It's something for us to think about. I think it'll give us a place a new value on our membership here. We, if we consider this seriously. We are the chosen people. They talk about the Jews being the chosen people. That's hogwash. We are the chosen people. We are. Where would you ever find a fellowship like this? The out giving and the outpouring of love that we find in here. I belong to, to organizations and clubs and lodges and veterans groups and things such as that. I like them, I enjoy them, but they have no relationship to what the spirit is in a fellowship such as ours, in our fellowship here. There's nothing like it. And you and I have this privilege. Now, how about this alcoholic fellow? I mentioned a moment ago that I think he's a different breed of cats than anyone else. And I don't think everyone can be one. I think you have to have certain characteristics to be an alcoholic. There are drunks and there are alcoholics. Every alcoholic is a drunk, but every drunk is not an alcoholic by a long shot. Believe me, because I've, I've laid drunk with all of them. Now, the alcoholic, I think you can pigeonhole him by characteristics. I've never seen an alcoholic yet who is not a high-strung individual. This alcoholic is a very sensitive soul. He's always going around looking for someone to hurt his feelings. <laughs> He's like a big kid. We feel, we cry. I see in this fellowship I've never seen this happen in any lodge meetings I've been in or veterans meetings. They talk about some horrible things in veterans meetings sometimes about their poor old buddies. I never see a guy cry. How many guys have you seen cry in here? It's not unusual for a fellow to break all up in this fellowship and a girl. We're sensitive people. We're like a bunch of kids. It's a, it's a different, something different in here. 
The alcoholic is the biggest liar that ever wore shoes. He's a conniver and he's a thief. I would steal a red-hot stove. Anything. I used to bring home some of the oddest trinkets for which I would have no use whatsoever, but when I was picking them up, I thought perhaps sometime there may be some need for this. But I'd bring it along with me. Some of the doggonest things I used to collect of other people's. But uh, the alcoholic is an extremist. He never does anything by halfway measures. It's whole hog or nothing with the rummy. He's an, he's an idealist also. You probably wouldn't think so sometimes, but he is. He's, he is really an idealist. He's a great guy, and he, he wants to have fun. He's really a social creature, and he's been so lonesome, and so he's just been discarded by anyone, and he's been booted out, and he's rejected. He's lonely. I was never so lonely in my life as when I came to on that waterfront in New York with the realization that I had not one friend, there was not one person in the world who cared whether I lived or died. This is an awful feeling. I shall never forget it. Today, I have thousands of friends. It's wonderful. People make a fuss over us. They accept us. They love us. They, we do for one another. We don't expect too much of each other. But the love is here. I have never seen a fellowship like this. I don't like to hear AA uh, spoken of as an organization. It's a fellowship. It's a fellowship of the redeemed. Now, since we know that alcoholism has been around a long time, we know something about who the alcoholic is and the rummy. What do we do about it? All these things have been tried. We've been persuaded, we've been cussed, we've been disgusted, we've been kissed, we've been kicked, we've been damned, we've been praised, we've been hired, we've been fired, we've been rehired and refired. Everything's happened to us. People have lectured us, people have thrown us out, people have taken us back in. Everything, we build things up and it all goes down again. What happens? How, how can we work with a fellow like this? What can we do? AA has the answer in these 12 steps of ours. I'll spend the next hour and a half on the 12 steps. In the Oxford group, people were always talking about life-changing, life-changing. The Oxford group were a bunch of people who were of a religious persuasion. They were trying to live better lives by Christian principles, by good spiritual principles. and. They felt that by adopting and accepting these principles and surrendering their wills and their lives to the care of God, they would live differently, they'd be different people, which was true. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me was after a meeting in Akron one night, one of the boys came to me, this Bill Van Horn. He's dead now, all those fellows are gone. Bill came to me, and Bill was a great, maybe some of you folks around Ohio knew him. He was a terrific guy. Bill had, it was a great big husky fellow, and he had been, uh, he, he was on a small pension from the First World War. And when he get that pension the first of the month, he 
always would really go on the tear, and he thought he could whip the police department in Kent and in Akron. And this he couldn't do, but he kept trying. And he had so many nightsticks laid over his head that he got silly. And uh, finally, the folks, they couldn't put up with this anymore, and they had Bill probated. They put him in the Maslin State Insane Asylum, and they threw the key away on him. That's where Doc Smith found Bill. And Bill wasn't any nuttier than the rest of us, only when he drank, he was like an engine. He'd go black. But when he was sober, he's a fine guy. So Doc got him out of there and put him in the group in Akron. And for some reason or other, Bill preceded me by about six months in the group. And for some reason or other, he took a great shine to me. He used to spend a lot of time with me after meetings. And one night he came to me after a meeting. He says, Clarence, he says, I'm going to give you the answer to this whole thing. He says, I'm going to give you something. I want you to read this. I want you to memorize it. I don't want you to ever forget it because here's the answer to the whole, here's the scoop right here. So... Bill reaches down, pulls out his billfold, which is all stuffed and crammed full of old papers and cards and clippings, everything but money in there, see? And he pulls all this debris out in the pile, and he finally comes a little piece of paper, and he hands it to me. And on this paper was a Bible verse. And I looked at this Bible verse, and I looked at this big gorilla, and I thought, well, maybe they've left him out too soon. <laughs> but anyway... Bill gives me this, and it was, it's one of my very favorite verses. It was a 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, the 17th verse. And it reads, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That had a tremendous impact on me. Any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And this was our approach to this in the old Oxford group. A new life. Everything passed away. Everything gone. This is our approach in AA. Now, where we supplanted a lot of things the Oxford group had, we had to because we had to have something here that had more of a universality to it than the Oxford group did. I was talking to some of the boys here tonight about that and one of the reasons why we had to break away from the Oxford group people. It would have automatically eliminated a lot of people who deserved to have this. Some certain religions couldn't stand for some of the forms and ceremonies that were peculiar to the Oxford group. When this AA program was written, we could go along without these objectionable items in the Oxford group program. So we use this 12-step program as a means of changing our lives. Let us go over these steps. You probably have heard interpretations of the 12 steps before. Let me say this. I'm very fortunate that I was there when these were written. I was there when the book was written, and I know the intent of these steps. Perhaps I have a little different slant on them than some people have or that you have heard before. I would like to give you some of my slant and interpretation of these steps, which is our program and which is our way of survival. In the Oxford group, we felt there had to be certain things present in order to change. We, there had to be a need for a change. Well, there has to be a need for a change here. If we're alcoholics and we know it, then if we want to do something about it, we've got the wherewithal to do it. So this program, in my mind, is broken down into four phases. 
the phases of admission, phase of submission, phase of restitution, and the phase of construction. The phase of admission is contained in the first step. It says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, this was not difficult for me. The evidence was overwhelming. I'm, I was powerless over alcohol, and my life was unmanageable. So there is a step of admission. Well, fine, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, so what? The next thing, what do we want to do about it? And what can we do? Now, this is what tells us what we can do. The next phase is our phase of submission, where we submit ourselves, our lives, and our wills to the care of God. Second step says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe. It doesn't say we believed when we arrived here. Lots of people come into AA. I've seen people come into AA and they fought this thing for a long, long time about believing anything like this. And Lord help them. I, I can understand it. I can sympathize with them. And I don't hold any brief for them either. I'm not against any of this. But we have to come to believe if we're going to accept this program. You might have some other program you have in mind, but this is the AA program I'm talking about. I'm not talking about BB or XX. This is AA. This program here says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'm not worried about that sanity bit. That, was, that, was, that sounds good to me. I'm glad I was nuts. Because of some of the things I did, I would have hated to have done it and not be nuts. Yeah, that's, believe me. Now, I couldn't help myself. I tried. Other people tried. But I was told by these people whom I met, these alcoholics who preceded me in Akron, that this power had helped them. My sponsor told me it had helped him. So, okay. I wanted to quit. I wanted to do something about it. So I came to believe it could help me too. I might say that when I came to this fellowship, all these men were considerably older than I was. I was ju I just passed 35 when I came to this program. And these men were all up in the 40s and 50s. And uh, if this thing could help them after the lives they had, it certainly could do something for me. Third step says, <clears throat> we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Boy, that's asking an awful lot from a rummy. And unless that rummy hurts real bad, he's not going to go for this deal at all, unless he means business. We're starting to separate the men from the boys now, see? As I said before, no rummy's going to change till he hurts real bad, till he feels a certain way. And if he feels badly enough, he isn't going to squawk too much about this. If he squawks too much, it's too bad. Eventually, he has to come to this if he wants help in AA. We come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could, could restore us to sanity and so forth. We made this decision. Making a decision is rough for an alcoholic. We are the most indecisive people in the world. We decide we're going to meet you on the corner of 9th and Euclid here at, tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock. We'll probably meet you at 20th and and some other street, 11 o'clock next October. Some guy might come along with a jug, and now every, all the bets are off. Everything changes. So this decision, 
this decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of a god, some ethereal creature in the dark blue yonder out here of whom we have very little acquaintanceship and we're probably scared to death of. This is asking a lot. And believe me, if we're not ready, we're not going to go for this. So this is it. The fourth step, it says, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, I think that step has to be taken with the help of someone. I don't think there's any alcoholic worthy of the name who has the capacity to take that step. Because the capacity we have for justifying ourselves is too much. And we are very apt to gloss over the things that we should be dealing with on this inventory deal. So I think we need a sponsor or some knowledgeable sympathetic person from AA to help us in this inventory. And the next step suggests that there is someone that was at our elbow. Now this inventory, let me get this straight. This doesn't say anything about we have to stand up and tell every sin we committed, every indiscretion we committed. God knows we can't remember everything we did. I know some of the most interesting things that happened to me. I have no recollection. Somebody told me about it. <laughs> How can I remember all these things? I can't even remember my middle name now sometimes so I get out of here. It's, uh, this is impossible. But it says something here about the, this, these uh, nature of our wrongs and all that sort of thing. That, that, that's what we're having to do is to deal with the nature of our wrongs. The next step here says that we admit it to God and to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That's what it says in that step. Not the wrongs themselves, the nature of them. This is important for us to know. That step suggests that someone is there because we admit it to ourselves and to God and to another human being, this guy at our elbow here. See? This is important. The next step here, it says, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Boy, that's something, isn't it? Ever hear it like that before? We were entirely ready. It doesn't say we were kind of ready, or about to be, or we we're just about ready, or all, almost ready. It says we were entirely. An alcoholic does everything entirely. And he has to do this entirely. And he's, he's ready to have what? To have God remove him. We can't remove him. And remove all of these defects of character. This is tough. This is tough. You have to mean business on this deal. But oh, what dividends we get if we go ahead in the right way with this. The next step, it says, we humbly asked him. We humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. No deal. We didn't make any deal with God. We didn't say, God, if you do this, I'll do this, and so forth like we used to do. Not a bit. We humbly asked him to remove them. That takes care of the submission. I would say that we pretty well have submitted our lives and our wills to the care of God by the time we get that far. Something is happening to us. Something is really taking place within us by this time. And if we're still here and with it, then we go on to this inventory proposition, the restitution. This restitution is the steps eight and nine. That's the third phase. Says we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. That attitude of willingness to make amends to everyone is what's important in this step. 
Obviously, we can't make amends to everyone because we don't know everyone we've hired. A lot of people are no longer available. So we have to have that attitude of willingness to face these people. Then the next step said we may direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I think this step needs, this restitution requires someone to help us. I don't think we can do this ourselves. I don't think it's a safe thing to do. We can make, in our first blush of enthusiasm in AA, you know, when we're in that three-month period when we can write a better book, we can run a better group, we can do everything better, and I don't know how all these stupid birds got along all this time before I got here. When we get into this thing, boy, a lot of funny things can happen. Serious things can happen. I think there are certain stages an alcoholic goes through. I think the first three months is a very critical stage because I've always said that after, by this time, he can write a better book and he can run a better group than anybody. He is really it. If he lives through that, and he gets up to about nine months, there's another period there that could be pretty sticky because he's been in long enough now that there has been a lot of people who have come in after him and he is starting to get pontifical and he looks down his nose at some of these new ones and he tells them how they should clean the ashtrays and they should do this and they should do that and he is well nigh a real veteran by then and they better listen to him because he's Mr. AA this is nine months well if he lives through that there's another period which comes at a year. Now this year period of danger is more applicable to the periodic AA than it is the chronic. I, fortunately, I was a chronic AA. I was drunk all the time. Uh, I didn't have to suffer through some of these things that the periodics did. I just used to, in the morning, get up and belt away and get it, and I'd get back in the same that I was before, and I didn't have to suffer through all these things that the periodic did. But the periodic in a year, he's never made this year. You see, he has a year is a time element that has been been disastrous to him. It's, it throws rocks in his way. He's been he's signed pledges for a year. He's sworn off for a year. He's signed on New Year's Day. He's going to drink all this year. He's uh, then he's been sentenced to a year, and all this year business. You know, it's a it's a time. It's a block in his, uh, in his capacities here. So this monkey's never made this year. And when he does finally make it an AA, sometimes the guy thinks, well, I have arrived. I have something now that never I had before. Something has happened to me. I am okay now. And he can rest back on his oars. This sometimes happens. I don't need so many meetings. I don't have to hang around so many of these jugheads. I don't like to listen to all this yak, yak, yak that they're all going on about how drunk they got all these years. I've heard all the stories. So this all goes through his mind. And he's starting to get busy in other things anyway. He's gotten back to church maybe. He's got a job. He's making, got a little jingle in a pocket. He's got a new car. He's got a new wife. And <laughs> Everything is going, you know, and he is, uh, he's getting to be a pretty important guy in the community. And he's outgrowing these things, so he's had his year. And he can take things easy now and lead a normal life, you know. I just love to see these 
poor suckers that try out this normal life business. If you think you're ever going to live a normal life in AA, what is a normal life anyway? You know, a normal life for a rummy is to be drunk. <laughs> Don't ever forget that when they start talking about normalcy. That's our normal state of affairs. Now, if the rummy lives through this year thing, there's another critical period which comes at two years. By this time, he is, things have happened pretty well for him. He's getting settled down pretty well. And he sits down one day and gets thinking about this thing. And all of a sudden, he comes to the conclusion that he don't know a bloody thing about this yet. That, to me, is the beginning of wisdom. This guy knows that he has a long ways to go yet, at two years. He's been to going to his meetings, he's been working hard, he's been running around helping wherever he could and doing what he could, he's been conscientious. He finds out after two years, he's just beginning, he's just getting his feet wet. After three years of constant effort and attention and interest and love and study and exercise, just then does the average alcoholic start to get to the place where he can become logical after three years. And this is after a lot of work. Don't ever forget this. I, I, I didn't read this in a book. I have seen thousands and thousands and thousands of alcoholics come to AA. I know thousands and thousands of them all over the country and, and elsewhere. And I've seen this experience. I've lived through it. And this is about the way it goes. I'm not talking about you geniuses out here. I'm talking about the average rummy who comes here. They're just a slob like myself. Of course, we get geniuses. But uh, we have to excuse them. <laughs> now, we have gone through admission, submission, and restitution. This restitution is tough. We have to go to people. Two of the roughest restitution jobs I had, one was with my own brother, and the other was with a bartender. And I had to do this, and I'm glad I did. They're both passed away and gone now. And I'm glad I had that chance, but I, I did it. It was a rough deal, it really was. It wasn't easy. A lot of people I went to and see, they say, okay, you quit drinking, just stay away from me. That's all right, you know, you know, I won't bother you, just don't you bother me. We'll get along, just stay away. A good many of them says, well, that's fine, Clarence, that's swell. Glad to hear it, and good luck. A lot of people told me that, most of them did. But everyone doesn't accept us, and, but we have to try this. That's what the program calls for. We have to clean up all this garbage if we can. We have to make the effort and be willing at least. The last phase of our program is a phase of construction. We've had the admission where we know that there's something wrong. We've submitted our will and our lives to the care of God. We've taken, uh, we've made our restitution. We've cleaned up the past and dropped it, let the dead past bury its dead, as the good book says. Now we have to construct a life. There's, there's one thing of getting sober. There's a guy who says, it's easy to quit drinking. I quit a thousand times. Yeah, it is easy to quit. Staying quit is a trick. And here's the way we stay quit, is these last three steps. These are the steps I prefer to refer to as the steps of construction. The tenth step, it says we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. 
Well, that's really a switch for a rummy to ever admit he's wrong. And do it promptly yet. This is, this is something. We've had to grow a lot before we ever get to that 10th step, believe me. So we would never admit anything. We don't even admit it's raining outside. It might involve us in something. Did you ever, I suppose some of you folks have on occasion gone down out of curiosity to a courtroom just to hear cases. I, you know, you've never been down there as a principal or anything. <laughs> but we do get down once in a while as our civic duty to find out what's going on. So you see some lush come up there in front of the judge in the morning and he's all blurry-eyed and he's shaking and he's sick and he's scared and he's sweating and he stinks and he's probably been in a can all night and he don't look so good anywhere you look at him and uh, they read off the charge there the bailiff reads it and the judge looks at him and says you were drunk <laughs> you were drinking Well, after a lot of haggling around, this guy will finally break down and admit that he had two beers. <laughs> this is the undoing of the drinker, two beers. I have never heard of anybody getting in trouble really getting drunk. It's only those guys that had two beers. <laughs> so I would advise anybody to refrain from that. Now, we won't admit anything never have but here this 10th step is requiring that every day we take a personal inventory of ourselves we have to check on ourselves time and again during the day why do we do this and why do we admit promptly when we're wrong this is the reason for this it takes us off the defensive we've been on the defensive all our lives that's why we've always uh, skirted around every time someone asks us a question we parry it you know I can remember when I came into AA, I lay in that hospital in Akron for a week. And every day, some of these men came in to see me. They come in and visited me, and everyone told me their story. And everyone told me the same thing before he left. He says he has the answer to my drinking problem. But none of them would tell me what the answer was. They were leaving that up to my sponsor, see? The guy that was gonna operate on me. <laughs> The last day I was in this hospital, Paul Stanley came in. Paul's dead now, Paul and Dick both. And Paul could really talk, wow. Paul's wife was a Christian science reader and Paul had got inoculated with some of this Christian science. He got it mixed up with Oxford group stuff and he'd been reading Emmett Fox and he got into spiritualism and he got to talking to me. He came in, the, I'm in the bed. I might say I weighed 130 pounds when I was in that hospital, so you know I was pretty sick. I hadn't eaten for a long time. And this is the last day I'm in the hospital. I'd been in there about a week, I guess. And Paul came in at breakfast time. He came in early, didn't have anything else to do. And he ate my breakfast for me. Paul was still talking to me at lunchtime. You fellas in Cleveland and all you people know about this hospitalization they do up in that part of the country. And a lot of people around here do the same, I guess. So Paul was in there at lunchtime and he ate my lunch for me. I got the dessert. But it, the point is, I wasn't even eaten yet. I was in there a week and hadn't started to eat. So you can imagine how shape I was in. 
and he's still talking to me. I'm still here. Well, about four o'clock in the afternoon, Doc came in, and Paul left. He missed my supper. So Doc came in, and he sat on the foot of the bed in a very unprofessional posture, and he looks at me. And many of you folks who knew Doc, and good many of you here I know, have had the pleasure of meeting him before he died. Doc was a tall, angular fella, and he had fingers on him about this long. And Doc sat there a minute, he looked at me, he says, well, young fellow, he says, what do you think of all this by now? He says, well, I says, well, I think this is fine, all these fellas coming in talking to me. I don't know any of them from a load of hay, but they're all telling me there's what happened to them, and they're all so good to me. And I says, it's wonderful. I think it's great. I says, but there's one thing that gets me. He says, well, what's that? I says, these fellas keep all, all keep telling me that they have the answer to my problem, but they won't tell me what this is. I says, just what is this answer? What's the secret? What do I have to do? What are you going to do to me? I'll never forget this. He looks at me and he says, well, young fella, he says, we don't know about you. We don't know if you're ready yet. 130 pounds, I'm on the bum, I don't have any place to go, I'm broke, I don't know where I'm going when I leave that hospital. And I don't know if I'm ready. I often contrast that with the idea of the way we kiss some of these monkeys nowadays. Oh, come on. I had to fight my way into this deal, really. So uh, what's to get ready? I had to convince him I was ready for this. Finally, I guess I did, because he says, okay, he says, I'll give you the answer to this whole thing. He turns to me then with his long bony finger and he points it at me. And he says, young fellow, he says, do you believe in God? Oh boy, this really shook me because this is the last thing I ever expected to hear from a doctor. I expected something quite different, as I explained before. <laughs> so this guy, this shook me up, and of course, uh, being a rummy, I can't answer a question like that without parrying, you know? So I look back at him, I'm amazed, of course, and I says, well, what does that have to do with it? He says, young fella, that has everything to do with it. Do you or don't you? This is giving you the spiritual foundation of you know, the silver, silk glove, I guess, huh? With a hammer. So I'm flabbergasted. I don't want to answer this because I, I things went through this blubber of mine. I thought, holy smokes, I'm in this hospital. I'm obligated to a bunch of religious nuts. See, the last thing I want to get tangled up with. So he's waiting for an answer. Do I or don't I? So I says, well, I guess I do. He says, there's no guessing about it, you do or you don't. <laughs> well, I'm stuck. Where can I go? So I said, okay, I believe in God. Yes, I do. He says, fine. He says, now we can get someplace. I thought, oh boy, we're gonna get someplace. He says, get out of there and get on your knees. So he bounces me out of that bed and I get on my knees. He says, we're gonna pray. I says, who's going to pray? He says, you're going to pray. I says, I don't know anything about praying. He says, I don't expect you do, but he says, I'll utter a prayer and you can repeat it and that'll do for this time. So he got me down there on my bones in that hospital room and he told, he uttered a prayer and I followed him. I felt foolish, of course, naturally. I felt like a fish, but it didn't kill me. As you see, I am here. And 
after we concluded, he shook my hand. He said, young fellow, you're going to be all right. And that night he carried me off to a meeting, and that was my beginning. I just want to mention that because it ties in here about what this program is and about this changing of our lives. This next step, this, the 11th step, is a very important step because it starts us on a prayer life. This 10th, 11th, and 12th steps are the steps of construction. Remember, I mentioned that before. This is where we're constructing a life. In order to live by spiritual principles, we have to learn how to talk and communicate and listen to God. And because it ties in here about what this program is and about this changing of our lives. This next step, this, the 11th step, is a very important step because it starts us on a prayer life. This 10th, 11th, and 12th steps are the steps of construction. Remember, I mentioned that before. This is where we're constructing a life. In order to live by spiritual principles, we have to learn how to talk and communicate and listen to God. And it doesn't make any difference what our religion is or what our persuasion is or whether we have any at all we've strictly fallen away from all that this 11th step cannot offend anyone this is our beginning in a prayer life in our communication with this power who is helping us and has taken away all these things and is forgiving us and is giving us this new life so that all things have become new this is where we learn to communicate listen to this 11th step it's so important for you and I it's written in very plain language. There's nothing, nothing that is concealed. It says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Just listen to that. Break that down a little bit. What are we seeking here in our prayer? We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, that's all. What are we praying for? Are we praying for a new job, a new wife, or a new house, or for sobriety? Nothing like that, it doesn't say anything like that. You don't see anything about sobriety in this whole program. It says we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. We want a conscious contact with him. We want to be able to meet him, talk with him, feel him, express ourselves to him, listen to him, get orders and directions from him. It says, praying only for knowledge of his will for us. We want to know what God wants us to do. His will, not ours. This is so important. And we're praying for the power to carry this out. The good book tells us that he will never give us any task with what he gives us the power to see it through. This step tells us this too. Tells us what to pray for, how to pray and what to pray for. Very simple, would that prayer offend anyone in this room? How could it? If you've never prayed, this is a good way to begin. The 12th step, let's listen to this step. Here's a step, it's probably the most maligned one in the whole kit and caboodle. 
Do you hear people talking about 12-stepping this and 12-stepping that? What is the 12-step? What does it say? What does it require? It says in this 12-step, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. Remember, it assumes we've gone through these steps and taken them conscientiously and done something with them. And as a result of that, we had a spiritual experience. Now, what is a spiritual experience? It's very simple. I don't think there's any person in his room, except when he had DTs, ever heard whistles blowing and bells ringing and lights flashing and some coming clobbering real hard. No, this isn't the way spiritual experiences happen. If any person has had this kind of a spiritual experience, it usually fades out about as fast as it came. A spiritual experience is a change, a change of heart, and something comes into us, something replaces something that was here that we don't need anymore. It's a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of attitude, a change of person, if you please. We are different people. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This step here, it says we, having had a spiritual experience, a change, that thing happened to us because we took these steps. It says as a result of these steps, it isn't just because someone hypnotized us or took, brought us in here and took us to a meeting and said, just sit here, this will rub off on you. That's the biggest bunch of hogwash I ever heard. AA isn't going to rub off on anybody. AA has to be rubbed into you, not on you. This is, this is a big difference. And how it gets in us is through the acceptance and through our giving. Now, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. People say to me, when should I go out and do 12-step work? When should I go out? Read your 12-step, what does it say? It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, then we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics. We carry this message when we have a message to carry if you please. That's what's fouling up so much of AA today. A bunch of birds are carrying something they don't have. I say, if I have measles, I can give you measles. If I've got whooping cough, I can give you that. If I don't have measles, I can give you no measles. If I have no whooping cough, I can't give you that either. If I don't have a message of AA to give you, if it hasn't happened to me, how can I share it with you? I don't have it to share. I don't say that new people shouldn't go out on 12-step calls, but they should go out with their sponsors, people who have had this experience. Then everybody learns something, everybody shares. Think about this sometime. Let me know if you have an argument with that. I don't see how you could. Let's carry what we have. Let's be sure we have something. And it's here for all of us. We are the chosen people. We have been tapped for this. We've been touched. There's no person I've ever met in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether he has made this right from the start or not, that hasn't been a changed person. Something's happened to him. If nothing else, it spoiled his drinking for him. You and I have seen this many times. 
This is not unusual. I'm a lucky one. I, I never had any drinking trouble after I come to AA. When I quit, I was done. I had mine. And I was very fortunate in this, but a lot of people are not that fortunate. Something happened along the line that they just didn't get taught properly, they didn't weren't brought in it properly, or maybe they weren't proper for it at the time. I don't know, a lot of reasons. But I, you and I have seen people who come into this thing years ago, and they batted themselves around and got hurt for and hurt a lot of other people, including themselves, for a number of years. And then eventually, something let go in them, and this program and this feeling and this spirit took hold of them, and they became sober and become great inspirations. This happens. This AA isn't just a pattern that everyone sits down and does the same thing and succeeds in the same way. We don't all communicate exactly the same way. We all, as, as Julian said, he come up here and talk to some of you Yankees. You don't know what most of you are talking about. He can't understand you. He knows something about it. He does have one basis of understanding. That's in our alcoholism and our membership here. Believe me, he understands everything about that in you. He may not be able to understand Yankee language, which is not important. We can communicate with people who can't even speak the English language. We can get along and have fellowship and love with them. And we do in many places. But this 12 step summarizes what has happened because we have accepted this step and taken it and done something. Now we're living. This is the greatest program ever devised. This is terrific. It's a great privilege to belong to it and to be chosen for it. I consider myself a very fortunate person. I've had many years a real happiness in this. I'm a younger man now than I was when I came here 25 years ago much younger, because I had pictures of myself that were taken. A guy took movies of me about three years before I quit drinking. I wish you'd see those movies. And I was an old man, believe me. I, uh, I can do things now I couldn't do then, by a long shot. And I have a new life. I enjoy it. I want to get the most out of it I can. You and I all have the same privilege. We are indeed the chosen people. I thank you very much for listening.